Y'all got in out of the rain. Y'all the ones that had sense enough to get in out of the rain tonight. Is it still raining? I don't hear it. This is a bad place in the building to hear rain because if it's raining outside, you can hear it. I would have liked to have had the amount of water that rolled off of our roof here at Hillcrest this afternoon about an hour ago. For every gallon of water, I'd like to have a $100 bill. Somebody say amen. I'd be doing pretty well tonight because the water was rolling just a little while ago. I'm glad to see you this evening. I'm glad you're here. Uh, the Bible is open to Genesis chapter 15 for a few minutes tonight. First book of the Bible, so you don't need a roadmap to get there. And we're only going to look at one verse of Scripture tonight, a very important verse, one of the Bible's most significant single statements uh, that you find anywhere in the pages of God's Word. It's one of the great promises of the Bible. In fact, I'm going to ask you to ponder tonight what you think the greatest promise in the Bible actually is. You know as well as I do that the Bible is a book of promises. The Bible is filled with promises. I don't know how many. There are people who've got more time on their hands than I do that count up these kinds of things, but there are literally hundreds and hundreds of individual promises in the Bible. I was in a bookstore not long ago, and there was a book there that was entitled 2,000 Bible Promises. And it was two volumes set, and they had basically recorded every promise, or this particular author did, every promise that he could find, had a little written exposition under each one of them in this little two-volume set that had just about every promise in the Bible you could think of, promises about God's protection, promises about God's provision, promises concerning God's strength and God's security, and the list, of course, goes on and on. But of all of those many and varied, what Peter called great and precious promises, which of those do you think is the most significant one of all? Well, here's the thing. I'm not real big into lists, and I think you do have to get be very careful in terms of listing which is more important than that when it comes to scriptural principles. But I do think that if you were forced to itemize the promises and find a single one, without which none of the other promises in the Bible would really even matter, much less make a whole lot of sense, I think that you'd have to come to Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6, one of the most important, if the not most important, single statement in the Bible. Here it is. And Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, you might think it odd that I would say that that may be the most important statement in the Bible. Abraham believed God, and God credited it to him as righteousness. That's singularly important for a couple of different reasons. One, because it's not only found here in Genesis 15, it's quoted three other times verbatim in the Bible. That means that this singular verse of Scripture, first found in Genesis 15, is found in the Bible four times. Now, I'd say that's pretty important. It's not at all uncommon for you to find a verse of Scripture mentioned one other place in the Bible. For example, Jesus would be teaching from time to time and in order to support a point he was making, he would 
quote something from the Old Testament, maybe the book of Isaiah, for example. And so you would find that statement in the Bible in its original context in Isaiah, and then you would find it a second place where Jesus quotes it, maybe in the Gospel of Matthew. So I'd say that if a statement is quoted in the Bible, not once but twice, that would make it a pretty important statement. But only two times do you have a single statement in the Bible quoted verbatim four times throughout the pages of Scripture. The other one is also from the book of Genesis, ironically from Genesis chapter 2, and it has everything to do with marriage, Genesis 2.24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That verse is quoted three other places in the Bible. So I would say that that's a very important biblical statement, wouldn't you? And the other one is this one. Four times in the Bible, Abraham believed God. And he credited it to him or counted it to him as righteousness. If you're taking notes, you can find that statement in Romans chapter 4, verse 3. It's in Galatians 3 and verse 6. It's in the book of James chapter 2 and verse 23. So that's one of the reasons why you can say without question this may be the most important single statement in the Bible. But a second reason is simply because of what it teaches us. Not only is it quoted three times in the Bible, but because it's quoted three times, it establishes a fundamental Christian truth apart from which all other Christian teaching really loses its meaning. And that fundamental truth, of course, has everything to do with how a person establishes a relationship with God. In other words... How is a person really saved? Now, few things pale in comparison to that one singular concept. If you don't know how a person is saved, nothing else in the Bible really makes a whole lot of sense. And I think you can make an argument that nothing else in the Bible really matters. Outside of Christianity, every other religious system in the world has one thing in common. You know what that is? They all teach that you have to do something in order to be saved. Every single one of them. And the irony is there are many parts of Christianity that teach the same thing. That your standing with God has everything to do with something that you do or things that you do or rules that you keep or statutes that you have to follow. In other words, every other religious system in the world is based on what's called salvation by works or salvation by deeds. And it is all about keeping religious rules. Keep the rules you're in, fail to keep the rules, and out you go. And the important thing for us to realize here is that that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that salvation is a relationship that's based on what? Faith. That's right. Not based on what you do but based entirely on what you believe, or more to the point, in whom you believe. That's not to say that what you do doesn't matter, but what you do is an after effect of who you trust. 
Salvation begins with believing, or what we commonly call faith. And that's why this statement is so important. Abraham, what? Believed God. And based on his belief, not what he did, although what he did was significant, Abraham is a litany of good works unto God. But that's not what saved him. What saved him is what he believed. I did a funeral on Monday for a very faithful man, and I made that very clear because much of my remarks, or many of my remarks, were centered around things that the man had done with his life, as is the case with many of the funerals that I do where I know the person reasonably well. I'll tend to talk about what a great husband that the man was, or I might talk about what a terrific father the man was. I might talk about his career, a lengthy career, working for most of it at one company, proving himself to be faithful. I might talk it about, I may talk about his avocation, things that he was really good at doing. And I did that on Monday. I mean, this guy that I preached up to heaven on Monday had great avocation with woodworking, camping, water skiing, scuba diving. I mean, this was not a worldly man, but he was a man of the world. You know what I mean? And then I went through all of that. And as I normally do, I'll come to the climactic part of a funeral message and I'll say, but I want you to understand this, not one single of those reasons is why that person has been accepted into heaven by God. All of those things are wonderful, but that's not why they're in heaven today. They're in heaven today because of what they believed about Jesus Christ. That's what saves a person. And that's what makes this the most important promise in the Bible. Abraham believed God. And God had a response to that. He counted it to him as righteousness. And so mark this down. This is the hinge on which all of Christianity turns. It's the Bible's greatest promise. It's the single greatest lesson that we learn from the life of Abraham. Now let me remind you of a couple of absolutes with all of that in mind concerning uh, our understanding of salvation. First of all, you'll need to notice the basis of our salvation, and the basis of our salvation is grace. Uh, probably eight out of ten funerals, speak, speaking of funerals, eight out of ten of them will somewhere in there have amazing grace sung. Isn't that right? I mean, it's hard to imagine or think of a funeral that you've been to recently that didn't have amazing grace sung either at the beginning, in the middle of it, or at the very end. And that's because we have this intense understanding for those of us who understand Scripture and have walked with the Lord for a while of what a precious treasure the gift of grace truly is. And that's the one word that you cannot in any way, shape, or form divorce from the historic Christian faith. It's the word grace, and that's why we love amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch. Don't try to clean the word up. I'm surprised that some modern hymn writers haven't tried to put a more acceptable word in there. Did we just sing that tonight? Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? And then they updated the Baptist hymnal in 1971, and they took the word worm out. And then they said, for sinners such as I. 
Because, you know, everybody knows that we're sinners, but calling somebody a worm, that's really bad. And then they've cleaned it up in other hymnals since then. <laughs> Would he devote that sacred head for persons such as I? So in just about two generations, we've gone from being a worm to being a sinner to just being a person in the side. No, you're a worm because of sin in the presence of a holy God. No, amazing grace saves wretches like every single one of us who do not deserve to be saved. That's how hostile God is when it comes to sin. So we can't be saved apart from a loving, gracious God who makes a decision to love us rather than judge us. And it's certainly judgment that we deserve. Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And that's just a great verse because apart from the appearing of the grace of God, we have no hope. We have uh, this incredible need for grace. All of us have a need for it if we're to have any hope beyond the grave. And that's true, of course, because of sin. May I say it again tonight? You read the Bible and you'll come to a quick understanding that the Bible presupposes the whole world to be lost, isolated, and separated from God because of this state or condition of sin that we're born into. It's sin that causes a person to be lost and separated from a holy God who by his very nature cannot fellowship with, associate with, or have anything to do with sin. That's the way we come into the world. We inherit that from our spiritual ancestors, Adam and Eve. We're born in a condition of spiritual darkness, spiritual deadness, spiritual isolation from God. That's the way Paul sets up his magisterial second chapter of his letter to the Galatians. That's a beautiful before and after picture, but the before is really ugly. And he begins there in Ephesians 2, 1 by saying, as for you... Before you met the Lord, before you came to a condition of faith, before you believed, as for you, you were what? Say it again. Dead in trespasses and sins. That's every person. That's every baby in the preschool at Hillcrest. They just don't know it yet. Now, they're in a condition of innocence before God. They're sinners, but they don't know they're sinners. But they're, they're in this condition of spiritual deadness before God. You, collective, you, plural, you, all, y'all, were dead in trespasses and sins. And one thing's for sure about dead people. When you're dead, you can't do anything to help yourself. Somebody say amen. Dead people can't resurrect themselves. Somebody got to come along and do some kind of miracle-working CPR on you. Somebody's got to put the pads to the chest and give the spiritual shock if you're to come back to life. And that's where grace comes in. See, grace is God's willingness to do that, even though we deserve to be left alone and die. God's active choice to save those who deserve death. That's grace. 
And Abraham's a perfect example of that because here's the thing about Abraham. He didn't have anything to offer God. The Jewish religious leaders of the first century at the time of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you were to go up to them with a microphone, Oprah Winfrey style, stick it in their face and say, hey, how did Abraham become right with God? You know what they would say? Well, because Abraham was a righteous man. He was right with God because he was righteous. He was chosen to be the father of our nation because he was the most righteous candidate available at the time. Ah, wrong. Try again. Because that's the wrong answer. It's not true. Because you're reading something into Scripture that's just not there. I mean, you read the story of the beginnings of Abraham's life. Where was Abraham before he followed the Lord all the way to the promised land? He was raised in Ur of Chaldea in the Fertile Crescent, ancient Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq. And this was a pagan, polytheistic culture. They worshiped many gods, foremost among them the moon god, uh, the moon god Nana. I hope there's no grandmothers in here tonight that go by Nana. That was the moon goddess of the ancient Chaldeans, Nana. And that's, that's who Abraham's father worshipped. And probably, though the scripture doesn't say so exclusively, probably Abraham himself. And it was this man who was chosen by God to be the father of what would become a great nation. And he didn't do anything to deserve that. God just chose, well, why did God choose Abraham? Well, take that up with God. Because God's sovereign. God made a choice to set his love on that man. Not because he'd done anything to deserve it, because it was simply God's active choice. It was an act of grace. God choosing Abraham was an action of grace to a man who didn't deserve that kind of honorific, of being called to be the father of a nation who would later become known as Israel, a people special to God. Abraham was a man, he never worshiped God. He didn't do anything to deserve that. He'd never worshiped God. He'd never served God. He didn't even recognize God as God. And yet God chose him and used him. And this is grace. So God chose Abraham not because of who he was, but in spite of who he was. And this is why the concept of salvation by works doesn't fly biblically. Because if you could be saved by what you did, I'm telling you, You'd eliminate the need for Christmas altogether. You'd eliminate the need to eradicate the law. You'd eliminate the need for Easter. We just, listen, we could all save a lot of money come the month of December. Amen. There was no reason for Christ to come. There was no, certainly no reason for Christ to die. There was no reason for God to set up by the death of cross this majestic resurrection to demonstrate victory over sin, if by some means we were able to climb above sin through our own efforts. And that's why the Bible makes it clear, if righteousness comes by the works of the law, then Christ has died, what? In vain. For nothing. Paul was very clear about that. So mark this down. The great, the, and it was Adrian Rogers who said this years ago, the greatest form of human badness is human goodness when it's a substitute 
for being born again. Anybody that thinks that they can work their way into heaven on their own merits is demonstrating in the court of heaven the greatest form of human pride and egotism possible. Jesus told Nicodemus, y'all remember the story of Jesus and Nicodemus? Greatest conversation in the Bible, John chapter 3. Nicodemus was Billy Graham of his day. I'm telling you, drive up and down the streets of Jerusalem at the time of Jesus, there were a billboard there announcing a crusade, a stadium crusade. Nicodemus had come to town. He was the one preaching the revival. Every mother and grandmother wanted their little boy to grow up to be just like Nick when they were older. Nicodemus came to Jesus by night, and he said, Good teacher, we know that you're a man come from God. And Nicodemus couldn't even get the rest of the stuff out of his mouth. And Jesus cut him off and said, Let me tell you something about your life. You must be born again. Now, I want you to stop and think who he's talking to there, the most religious man in Palestine. Wearing long robes with tassels on the end and a spiked cap and walking down the street and everybody getting out of the way thinking here comes a holy man of God. And Jesus said, here's the deal. You're just as lost as the lowest pagan. And unless you be born again, you'll have no hope in the presence of God. Marvel not, Nicodemus, that I say unto you, you must be born again. Even his religious good works were not good enough to curry favor with God. You know why you can't be saved by your own efforts? Two principal reasons. One, the standard's too high. You know how, you know how many good things that you'd have to do? All of them. Every single thought and action would have to be righteous. In baseball, we call that what? Batting a, th no, we call it batting a thousand. Batting a 1,000. That means you get a hit every time up. Baseball is a game that's built on failure, if you haven't noticed. Because even the best hitters, the Hall of Fame hitters, get out 7 out of 10 times. Amen. So to earn your way to God, you can never strike out. You can never not get a hit. So this is the reason you can't be saved. Because the standard is the holiness of God. And I've said this before. This is where most people miss it in a works-based salvation system because what they do is they compare themselves to the wrong standard. They compare themselves to the worst people they can imagine. Adolf Hitler, Osama bin Laden, right? And so when we compare ourselves to Al Capone, we come out looking pretty good. Right? I never shot anybody, never killed anybody, never murdered anybody. Try to do good things, give a little money to good cause, and we come out looking pretty good. Well, that's comparing yourself to the wrong standard. You say, well, what's the right standard? The holiness of God. Now, you compare your life to a holy, righteous God, how's that going to work out for you, brother? Not real good. And this is why the Bible says in Romans 3.23, for all have sin and fall short of the glory of God, which is the proper standard of comparison. So salvation by works doesn't work 
because one, the standard too high, and two, it doesn't work because in a salvation by works, who's the focus? Where is the focus? The focus is on who? Focus on you when the focus ought to be on who? Ought to be on God. That's right. So in a salvation by work system, what's all about, uh, if I could dare quote Led Zeppelin in the house, when it's all about climbing a stairway to heaven, the focus is on you and your climbing, not on God and his grace. You see the difference? So what's going to happen when, if it were possible for you to get to heaven, what's going to happen? When you get to heaven, here's what you're going to be doing. You're going to be doing like what those bullfighters did when I was over in Spain. They would wrestle with that bull for just a little bit and flout that stuff. And then after a few minutes, a bull would get tired and that matador would just turn and strut that chest out. And he would walk away like this saying, look at me and look at what I'm doing. That's what you do when you get to heaven. If it's about what you did in order to get there. I've often said I'm not sure heaven would be much place worth going to if work salvation were true. Because the first thing that you would be doing when you got there is bragging about what you did to get there. You wouldn't need to talk about God. Wouldn't need to talk about the cross. Wouldn't need to talk about the blood. All you'd have to talk about is you. How many times you served in the soup kitchen? How much money you gave to the building project? The wing at the cancer center that you helped build for little kids, all of which were noble things. But it'd be all about you. And this is why it doesn't work. Because it robs God of the glory that belongs to him alone. Salvation in that sense would be a wage. Payment for services rendered. When the Bible presents salvation not as a wage, but as a what? As a gift. For by grace are you saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That's right. Ephesians 2 8 and 9, which is as classic a summary of the doctrine of salvation by grace that you'll find anywhere in the Bible. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Everybody tracking with me so far? Amen? So this is the basis of our salvation. It has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do <clears throat> with the grace of God. Now, we do have a response to make to the grace of God. Grace is God's initiative in salvation coming to us when we were dead in trespasses and sins and would never choose God because of the darkness and deadness of our hearts. But we do have a response to the grace of God. And that involves the means of our salvation, secondly, and that, of course, is faith. Now, back when we first started our study of Abraham several weeks ago, we had a little definition of faith, which you probably have forgotten. And so, to uh, just make sure you remember it, I think we put it in your notes tonight. Here's what faith is. Faith is trusting confidently what God has said, even when you don't have all the details. And that's especially true when it comes to what God has said about salvation. So biblical faith is not merely head knowledge. 
It's not simple cognitive belief. Faith is much deeper than that. Biblical faith is an active trust in which you yield the whole of your life, your past, your present, and your future. You yield everything to your life to God in the care of God for your eternal future. We have sung a song for years in the evangelical tradition, usually sung at the close of worship services, but it'd be a good song to sing anytime. All to Jesus I surrender. All to Him I freely give. I will ever love and trust Him in His presence daily live. That's biblical faith, this active trust, this full volitional surrender. It begins with the head, but it has to move to the heart. Um, Faith is a unique word because we don't have, uh, faith is only a noun in English. It's not a verb. We don't have an English verb for faith. In other words, you would never say in English, Jack Forbes faithed in Jesus Christ in 1959 or whenever. Because we don't use it as a, you were alive in 1959, weren't you, Jack? Okay, I don't want to offend Jack tonight. Um, Whenever it was. We, we, so we have to use a substitute word, and our substitute word is what? Jack, faith, Jack, Jack didn't faith in Christ. Jack what? Believed or trusted Christ. That's right. So most of the time in the English Bible, like in the Gospel of John, almost 100 times, 99 times in the Gospel of John, you've got some form of the word believe. And that's the Greek word for faith, pistis or pistuo. It's It's faith. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever faiths in him. But we can't say that in English because it's not a verb in English. So we use the word believe. Whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But it's not just this kind of belief. It's a wholehearted surrender. You remember me telling you the story years ago about the guy pushing uh, the wheelbarrow, yeah, across the tight wire, raging Niagara River, Niagara Falls, strings of tight wire across, pushing an empty wheelbarrow across, and the crowd gathers and cheers him. He turns around on dry ground, gets to the other side, gets back on, pushes that empty wheelbarrow all the way across the tight wire, the raging Niagara River, and everybody cheers and gets all excited, and he calms the crowd, and he said, hey, how many of you believe that I can do that again? And every hand goes up because everybody wanted to see him do it again. And he comes up to the guy at the front and he said, hey, what's your name? The guy said, my name is Chuck. He said, Chuck, do you believe I can do that again? Yes, sir, I believe you can do that again. He said, well, okay, Chuck, come and get in the wheelbarrow, brother. (laughs) Biblical faith. See, anybody, anybody can stand over here and say, yes, sir, I believe you can do that again. Go at it. And that's head belief. But faith is saying, you bet I believe Let's go. You see the difference? Now, faith is when somebody looks at Jesus under the conviction of sin and says, let's go. I give you my life, and I move over and put you in the driver's seat. Y'all remember Carrie Underwood's country song? Is she country? Yeah, okay. Jesus, take the wheel. That's actually a very biblical concept because that's what you do. You scoot over, get out from the driver's seat, relinquish control, 
and you give the steering mechanism of your life to Christ. That's faith. Now, the question is, have you done that? That's where a lot of people think they've got it right, but they've missed it. Because if you ask them, yeah, oh, yeah, I believe Christ is Lord. I've, I've had people tell me that a thousand times. Oh, yeah, I believe Jesus died on the cross. Well, how have you appropriated that in your life? Have you surrendered your life to, well, I don't know about any surrender, but I believe he died on the cross. Well, we may have to have a discussion about your life. Because it's a very serious thing to respond to Christ with biblical faith. Galatians 2.16, for we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through what? Through faith in Jesus Christ. Same thing stated beautifully, Romans 3, 22 and following. The righteousness of God is manifested through faith in Jesus Christ for all who what? For all who faith, for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift, not as a wage, but as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So based on these critical verses of the Apostle Paul, we can say that our salvation is by grace, through faith, because of the work of Christ on the cross. Everybody tracking with me? I'm saved by grace, through faith, because of Christ. That's salvation in a nutshell. Now, if you noticed in those two verses that I just read from Galatians and Romans, the key word there is the word justified, one of the most important words in the whole Bible. Really a synonym for saved. To be justified is to be saved. It's a legal word. It's a word of the courtroom. And it literally means to acquit. And so a person who's been justified has been acquitted. They've been found not guilty in the court of law. It's what it means to be justified. A person who's declared not guilty in a court has been justified by the law. Okay? And that's what happens to, to those who have surrendered to Jesus. You've been justified because of your faith in the work of Christ. God has swung the gavel. The moment you confess Christ as Lord, God swings the gavel, bang. And he says these incredible words that reverberate through the rest of eternity, not guilty. And you know what's really cool about that? God declares you not guilty even though you are. Boom. That's the beauty of it. Now, if that happens in an American courtroom, we go nuts. I could name high-profile cases where we know they did it. I'm not going to name any names because somebody get ticked off. I'll start an argument. We all name high-profile names. Everybody knows they did it. The preponderance of the evidence was overwhelming. And yet the declaration, not guilty. 
So you better not be too critical when that happens because that's what happened to you when you received the grace of Christ. God declared you not guilty even though you are. And that ought to cause us to shout amen tonight. I've often heard it since the time I was a little boy, the definition of justification. What does it mean? What does justification mean? How many of you remember the definition you learned in Sunday school? Just as if I'd never sinned, which is true. I'm not real crazy about that because it can overlook the fact that you have sinned. You sin really badly. Your sin is an offense to God. The dirtiest I've ever been in my life was when Judy and I built our first house just outside of Nashville, Tennessee. And we did a lot of sweat equity. The sweat equity we did didn't have anything to do with the building. had everything to do with the landscaping. We did all of our own landscape because I can do that. I'm not real good with bricks and wood and mortar. But I'm pretty good out in the yard. And so we did all of our front bushes and everything. And I remember I borrowed a friend's truck and we made, golly, I don't know, 4,000 round trips to a place called Soil Products in Hermitage, Tennessee. And we loaded up Chancellor's Mulch. Black is midnight. And I threw mulch on a hot June day, 95 degrees in the shade. I threw mulch. We threw mulch all day, sweat. I was filthy. My dad used to have a saying, you're filthy dirty. It wasn't just dirty. It was filthy dirty. And that was me. I was filthy dirty. And so I went in and took a shower. And when I came out, I was really clean. And Judy said, oh, you look a whole lot different now. And I said, yeah, man. I said, that great, the brand new shower. I said, yeah, it's just as if I never was dirty. But the fact of the matter is, I was dirtier than I'd ever been. And that kind of reduces the magnanimity of my dirtiness. And so justification, the end result is just as if you'd never sinned. In other words, God accepts you as now righteous because you have to have the gift of righteousness to connect with righteousness. But God accepts you even though you at one time were filthy dirty with sin. And understanding that magnifies the incredible gift that justification really is. God declaring you not guilty even though you're really guilty at the deepest part of your life. Everybody tracking with me? So this is a really important concept here. And all of this action of God is to justify us so that we can have a relationship with him today. And never forget that the death of Christ accomplishes two things, both in terms of what it removes from us and in terms of what it gives to us. Because in salvation, you have something taken away from you, namely sin. Faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ results in the gift of forgiveness where God removes the guilt of your sin, something that has to happen for you to fellowship with God. So God takes something away that's an impediment, but then God gives you something as a gift that's a necessity in order for you to turn and be accepted by God, and that's righteousness. So in salvation, you have a double thing. Sin is removed, 
righteousness given. The theologians use the word imputed. It's given to the lost sinner. And it's the presence of that righteousness that now enables us to connect to a perfectly righteous God. So it's not only what we lose in salvation, it's what we gain in salvation that enables us to fellowship forever with the Lord. Paul will emphasize this as it relates to Abraham because this is what's said, remember, about Abraham four times in the Bible. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as what? As righteousness. The word credited there or counted is an accounting term. In other words, it's like God taking an accounting ledger and writing into the credit column the name of Abraham. Abraham is no longer a liability because of faith. He's no longer going to hell because of faith. He's no longer separated from God. He's no longer in the debit column. He's no longer a liability. He's now part of the family of God because God has credited righteousness to his life. This is what Paul says about him in Romans 4, Romans 4, 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir to the world did not come through the law, but through the what? Say it out loud. Through the righteousness of faith. You see that? You see how, how over and over and over again this theme is repeated in the Bible? So how was Abraham saved? Yeah, see this question comes up a lot. How were the, old, how were the guys in the Old Testament saved? That's right. That's good. That's the right answer. I can remember. I mean, I've heard it in, since I was a kid. Well, they were saved by keeping the law. No, they weren't. Because if they could be saved by keeping the law then, why can't they be saved by keeping the law now? Why can't we be saved by keeping the law now? That's the wrong answer. No, they weren't saved by keeping the law. They couldn't keep the law. They couldn't any more keep the law then than we can keep it today. The law's there to show us how desperate we are for a Savior because we can't keep it. We break it every day into pieces. No, Abraham's saved the same way we're saved. Say it again. How was Abraham saved? By what? By faith, by what he believed. Abraham believed God. And based on his faith, God credited to him as righteous. The only difference is direction. We're saved by faith looking back to a cross. Abraham was saved by faith looking forward to a promise that he didn't fully probably even understand then. To a Savior whose name he did not know but who believed he was coming. And a cross he didn't yet fully fathom but it was the same faith that saved him, that saves us. That's what Jesus said about Abraham. John 8 and 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. I need to know you saw that. Say amen. Jesus saying to Jews, Jewish religious leaders who were zealous for keeping the law, your father Abraham saw me coming from afar. He rejoiced that he would see my day. And he did see it. Well, wait a minute. He died centuries before the coming of... No, he still saw it, but he saw it by faith. He saw 
what he could not see. That's what saved Abraham. Same faith that saves us. He looked forward, we look back, but it's the same faith. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. So salvation is by God's grace through faith. And then thirdly, the outcome of our salvation, and I'll simply mention this because it's time for us to go, the outcome of our salvation, relationship. That's what results. God makes it possible by grace. We appropriate it by a response of faith. The inevitable outcome of that, connection to a holy God. We now have restored for the rest of eternity through salvation what Adam lost in the fall. We now can walk with God and fellowship with God, which is the very purpose for which we were created. And that's why to die unsaved, listen, if you live your whole life, you may be as successful, you may make a million and a half dollars, you may make a billion dollars. You may grow a, a company to be a multi-billion dollar multinational company. You might be a, a, a physician who has a research breakthrough that enables people to live after having suffered from the worst forms of cancer. I don't care what it is. But to die without being saved, you will have missed the entire purpose for which God gave you life. I call that having lived as a successful failure. And there are lots of successful failures in the world. To die apart from achieving the purpose for which you were created is the worst kind of failure. But the outcome for those who find salvation through faith is achieving the purpose for which they were born an everlasting relationship with God, which is what Abraham had. No longer on the outs with God, now walking faithfully with God. Final verse, James chapter 2 and verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. Isn't that great? That's the outcome of salvation. No longer enemies, but friends. In a word, the biblical word for that is reconciliation. It's what happened to Abraham, and it's what can happen to you through simple faith in the precious grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is why Genesis 15, 6 is the greatest promise in the Bible. Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him as righteousness.